Amen. Happy 4th of July weekend, church. And uh, let me just say, without equivocation, unashamedly, God bless America. All right? I'm so grateful for this country. I'm so thankful to live here. Uh, I think it's a fantastic nation. I realize that might make some people uncomfortable in a religious setting, in a church setting. Someone gets on a platform, starts saying things that are patriotic. If that does make you a little uncomfortable, you know, I don't care. Um, I just want to say that we love America and, and we are grateful for the gift and the blessing and the opportunity that God has, has given us in this land. Uh, do we worship the flag? No. No, but that doesn't mean that people of faith shouldn't appreciate the blessings that God has bestowed upon this country, the opportunities that we have here. I see a direct link between the freedom of religion that we enjoy. And by the way, that's what brought the pilgrims to these shores. That is something that is enshrined in the First Amendment of our Constitution. And I think that it's no, no coincidence that historically America is a country from which the gospel has gone out and gone around the world. And you can tie it back to the freedom to worship here on these shores. Uh, God's gospel can go out from any place, even a place of enslavement, because his gospel does not return void. But to those of us who are free, who live in freedom, there is a stewardship. There is a responsibility that we have, and that starts with being grateful for that gift. Amen? And so we are grateful. But freedom is a fragile, fragile thing. And we recognize that, that freedom does not truly come ultimately from man or man's creations. It comes from God the Father. That's where true freedom... And speaking of freedom, can we welcome our friends from Living Free that are joining us today? Great to have you all with us today. But freedom is fragile. You know, a republic is a fragile concept. If you don't believe me, just look at the news right now and see what's happening with France. And you see the riots and the fires and the violence and the upheaval in the streets over there. France is theoretically a republic. They don't look like one right now. The laws are being ignored. They're not being enforced. And it's just a reminder that what man has built can easily crumble. Uh, when, when Benjamin Franklin left the Constitutional Convention, he was approached by some citizens and they said, Mr. Franklin, what kind of government have you given us? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it, if you can keep it. We're still finding out if we can keep it. It's going to take a watchful eye. It's going to take stewardship because if we're not careful, it can be swept away in a heartbeat. There is one kingdom that will never crumble, never fall, and that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And that is yet to come. And we've been talking a lot about the kingdom in several stories called parables. We've been in a series called Kingdom Stories, talking about this unique teaching method employed by Jesus, whereby he would tell stories uh, that, that feature everyday examples, things that are familiar to people, and he would use them to explain truth, reveal truth to those whose hearts were seeking him, and simultaneously, he would use these stories to, to conceal that truth from those who had rejected him, who were not seeking him. And so we've looked at several parables. We looked at the parable of the sower, and we said that represents the proclamation of the kingdom in this age. We live in an age that is not the age of the kingdom. This is the age of the church. But in this age, there are going to be aspects of that kingdom that will be manifested. And so Christ prophesied that in this age, it, the kingdom would be proclaimed like seeds being planted by a sower. They would take root in hearts 
and faith would grow. And during that age, along with those hearts that had received the seed of the gospel, you're going to have some hearts that only appear to receive it. But they, they don't actually receive it, but they're frauds, they're imposters. We saw the parable of the weeds, of the wheat and the tares. And you're going to have people in this age that look like the faithful, but they're frauds, they're fakes. And also, we're going to see that, that seed go, go forth like a mustard seed is planted. It's going to uh, grow into a mighty, mighty tree in which wildlife take refuge and are sustained. And this was to say that the kingdom is going to spread. It's going to expand. And it's going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. I think, I think religion and Christianity in America has been a part of that. And even nations that haven't come to faith in Christ have benefited by the spread of Christianity. But also in that age, there's going to be, uh, as in the parable of the leaven, which represents sin, you're going to see some things infiltrate the kingdom. You're going to see some, some bad doctrine. You're going to see some false teaching. You're going to see some worldliness. It's going to creep in. And sometimes in the church, we've seen that. We've seen the church fail in its first calling. And when the church engages in things that the world puts before us, the world becomes a darker place as well. And we looked at the parable of the uh, hidden treasure in a field, and we looked at the parable of the pearl, and we took those together, and we said that that referred to the unity of the coming kingdom, that in this age, God's going to take people that should have nothing to do with one another. They have nothing in common. In fact, they're natural-born enemies, and you're going to have Jew and Gentile, and he's going to bring them together, and they're going to be one people called his holy church. And that is a picture of the perfection of the kingdom that will one day be on the earth. And so this is what we have studied in these parables, in these kingdom stories. And now we're going to look at the final parable in Matthew 13. It's called the parable of the net. And I got to tell you, the topic of this parable is not fun. This is not enjoyable to talk about. Because in your notes, I want you to see that the parable of the net is about the judgment of the kingdom. The judgment of the kingdom. Some scriptures are easy to, easy to teach, some are not. This is not something that is easy to teach. It's not something that I'm excited to tell you about. I was walking in this morning and I saw Tommy Bradshaw out there and, and uh, we greeted one another and he said, well, pastor, this is going to be the hottest day that you've experienced since you've lived here. I said, is that right? And he said, yeah, the heat index is supposed to be 115. I said, wow. I said, well, that's appropriate. You know what I'm teaching on today? He said, what? I said, hell. <laughs> and so I've instructed Tommy in about two minutes, he's going to turn off the air conditioning. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, but you are going to get a glimpse at a coming judgment. You know, I could, I could do a conference on raising families and people would flock to that. I could do a conference on managing money and people would be excited to hear about that. And I could do a conference on spiritual gifts. Somebody would come. I could, I could do one on worship and people would be happy about that. Nobody does a conference on hell. This is not something pastors are excited to talk about. It's not something that people like to hear about, but we have to talk about it. You know why? Because scripture talks about it a lot. A lot. In fact, it gets repeated by Christ. This is the second time in one chapter he's going to talk about judgment. He's going to talk about hell. In fact, Jesus talked about hell more than all other biblical authors and prophets combined. It may shock you to know that Jesus talked about eternal punishment more than he talked about love. Why? We're going to find out. We're going to find out. Uh, but I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this faithfully, even though I don't really want to. 
There was an old-time preacher by the name of Philip Brooks. He said to a group of young pastors, he said, if you are afraid of men and a slave to their opinion, go and do something else. He says, you go. You go and make shoes to fit them. You go and paint pictures which you know are bad, but which suit their taste, their bad taste. But do not keep on all your life preaching sermons which shall not say what God sent you to declare, but what they hire you to say. I got a boss that's above every human being in any church that I could ever serve at. And truth is not easy to speak, but we got to speak what Jesus spoke. And that requires faithfulness. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time in the word. This unpleasant truth, and yet it's so vital, it's so important, that Jesus put it forth over and over and over. And I just pray that you would guide us. For those of us who have been delivered, those of us who are born again, I pray that we would be filled with gratitude at the freedom that we know, real freedom, won by you. But God, for those of us who are not born again, I pray that this stark reality would strike deep into their heart and that they would recognize a change that needs to take place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, look with me at verse 47. This is how this parable begins. Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And so here in this parable that speaks of judgment, we've got this opening line here in verse 47. And this, in your notes, speaks of the preparation for judgment. We are being prepared for judgment. Parables, as we've said, use elements of everyday life to illustrate truth. And so there are concepts that are familiar to any listener. But I'm here to tell you of all the parables that we've studied, there are no parables that have uh, elements that are more familiar to the disciples of Jesus than this parable right here. He says, we're talking about the kingdom being like a net thrown into the sea that gathers up fish. Why would his disciples resonate with that? Because fishing is what they knew. And fishing is what they did. It was their livelihood. I think of Andrew and Peter. They were fishermen. I think of James and John. And they were fishermen. They were, they were in the fishing business with their father, Zebedee. And this is what these guys were doing when Jesus met them in the very beginning. Uh, but in that culture, there were three primary ways that you would fish. And the first way is very familiar to you and I. And that's simply with a hook and line. With a hook and line. Okay, now they didn't have a rod and reel like we've got today. They just had a line with a hook on it. And this is referred to, you see this in Matthew 17. Jesus and Peter and some guys, they're, they're together. Some, some uh, uh, tax collectors come up to Peter and they grill Peter about his master. They say, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And they're trying to catch Jesus in disobedience to the law. And Jesus hears them and he says, hey, Pete, do those in power get their taxes from their children or from others? And Peter says, from others. And Jesus says, well, let's not offend them. He says, drop your hook in the water, Peter, and pull up the first fish and open that fish's mouth. And in that fish, you will find a gold coin. You'll find a shekel. Use that to pay your taxes in mine. Jesus would be a great guy to have around in mid-April, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, you get your taxes paid and you get to do a little fishing as well. But, but this is a very slow-going type of fishing. It's just catching one at a time. Uh, I mean, it might be pleasurable, not, not efficient. 
terribly as a business. The second kind of fishing that they would do involved a circular net or a casting net. We see in Matthew 4 when the Lord first calls Peter and Andrew to be fishers of men. They're out there. In verse 18, it says they were casting a net into the sea. And this is a very special net. It was a circular net. And they would have it over their shoulder. And uh, on this net, there would be weights on the perimeter of this perfect circle. And then it was drawn up in the middle. And there was a rope that was attached to the arm of that fisherman. And they got very good at this, at casting this net. And they would hurl this out there. And it would spin around. It would open up into a perfect circle. And it would hit the water. And those weights would cause it to sink. And as it sank, it would capture in its net all the fish that were in that area. That fisherman would jerk that line, and that net became a sack. And he'd pull up a big old bag of fish, and he'd drag it to shore. But you know, that's not the net that Jesus is referring to here. There's another net that was used, and this is called a dragnet. Dragnet. Not like the old TV show, you know, bum, 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 bum. This is a a trawl net. It's a very, very large, large net. How large? One commentator said that, that this, this sagene in the Greek, this dragnet, covered about a half mile of area. This is not a net for one guy. One guy couldn't do this. It would take at least 10 guys. And they'd tie one end of that net to the shoreline and the other end to the boat. And they would take that boat out into the sea, into that lake, and they would, they would start to take it out. And that net would stretch from the shore, uh, between the shore and the boat. And that boat would do a full circle out on that sea. And as it circled, that net, it had weights on the bottom, it had floats on the top, and those weights would go down and it would create this net wall. And this perfect circle, this boat would come back around to where it started, and within that time period, it would gather all the sea life in the middle of that lake, within a half mile of area. And here's what we see being described here. He says that when they gathered it all up, in verse 48, when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. You see, this kind of net didn't just catch the good fish. You caught everything. You caught bad fish, okay? Undesirable fish. What would be a bad fish to a Jew? It would be an unclean fish, right? This would be like your bottom feeders. These are the nasty ones. These are the ones down on the bottom, the catfish, the the carp, you know, the crayfish. That's all unedible, inedible to a Jew. They would never consume such things, and so they'd have to get rid of all that. They'd select the good fish, put them in containers, take them to market, and the rest of it, they'd get all of those undesirable fish. They'd get some debris, all of the seaweed, all that junk, and they would cast it, and they'd destroy it. They'd burn it. And it was this sorting that would take place, all right? That's the parable in its totality. Now, what's the truth behind this parable? Christ reveals it in the very next verse. Verse 49, he says, So it will be at the end of the age. I want you to underline that phrase if you can. The end of the age. That might be familiar to you. Have you heard that phrase in another parable? In fact, there might be some elements of this parable that we've just read that that are reminiscent of another parable that we've already studied. The, the whole idea of, of good and bad being together and then you've got you've to take the good and the bad and you've got to take the bad over here and you're going you're gonna to destroy the bad. Have we, have we seen that in a parable? Yeah, we, we've studied another parable like that. The parable of the weeds or the wheat and the tares, okay? And, and the setup to that parable that we studied a few weeks ago is that there was a man and he sowed wheat 
And he had an enemy that came at night and his enemy sowed weeds among the field there. And in the morning you had wheat that would pop up, but you'd also have weeds, these tares that look exactly like the wheat. But they are poisonous. They're inedible. And the servants came to their master and said, what do you want us to do? You want us to gather these up and burn them? And he said, no, no. And if you look back at verse 30, he said, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And Jesus would interpret this for us in verse 40. He says, just as the weeds are gathered to be burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. And that was the first time we saw that phrase in this chapter. And he said, then the Son of Man will send his angels. That's who those reapers represent, angels. And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we have this very, very similar theme in this story. And you might be thinking, why is he being so repetitive? Why is he repeating himself right here? Could be a couple of reasons. First of all, some things bear repeating. Is that true? All you mothers in here are like, yes. For spouses and children, in fact, right? You got to repeat yourself. I've learned as a pastor, you got to repeat yourself sometimes. Because even when you repeat yourself, people only remember about 25% of what you say. And so he's being repetitive, but there is, and I want you to see, a different emphasis here. It's the same idea, the same basic theme, but there's a different thing that is emphasized. What was emphasized in that parable of the weeds? In this age, you got weeds, you've got wheat. You've got the genuine article, you've got the imposter. And what is emphasized? That in this age, they're going to grow together. They're going to be together. Are there fakes and real Christians living together in this age? Are we doing life together? Are they, are they in church sometimes? Are there fake people in church? Now don't point one out, okay? But we know it's true. That's the emphasis of that parable. That's not the emphasis in this parable of the net. The emphasis here, I want you to see, number two in your notes, is that this involves a separation. A separation of righteous and unrighteous when... At the end of the age. You see, during this age, there's a coexistence. There is uh, collaborative living. You've got righteous possessors and unrighteous professors. I've had a few unrighteous professors in my day. Uh, You've got the saints and the ain'ts, right? The pious and the posers. And we're all here. But the day is coming when we won't be intermingled. We're going to be separated You see, presently in this world in which we live, God is allowing some nasty, smelly fish to swim about among the good fish, okay? He's allowing some bottom feeders to coexist with the righteous. Now, I don't use those terms to disparage human beings that God loves. God loves all human beings. I'm merely using the terminology in this parable to point out, as you would have to admit, that that compared to the righteousness of God, the unredeemed worldly system is deeply flawed. It is spiritually unclean and that is undesirable to a holy God but there is coming a time called the end of the age and just like in Noah's day when God said my spirit will not strive with man forever his days are numbered and he he hit that countdown clock and they had 120 years 
And, and, and when the sand ran out of that hourglass, God did what he said he would do to the, the world of Noah's day. Well, folks, the clock is ticking on our world too. And we don't know how long we have. He didn't give us an amount of time. But there's a lot of evil being done in the meantime. There's a lot of evil being tolerated in the meantime. There's a movie that, that's coming out on the 4th of July. It's called The Sound of Freedom. It's about sexual slavery of children. Jim Caviezel plays, so I think it's a faith-based film. He's, he's, he, it's all about delivering children out of that sort of deviant evil. Can you imagine that such a thing is tolerated in our day? That such a thing goes on and, and, and is even practiced and taken advantage of by people in the highest positions of power? Right here in, in 2023, this is going on. There is evil, and one day it's all going to come to an end. Because a holy God is going to separate the unrighteous from the righteous. And he says here, as he goes on, he says, the angels will come, just like those reapers came, and they took the weeds, and they burned those weeds. In this parable, he says, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. This is judgment. It's a time of judgment. When we hear the word judgment, what do we think of? You know, the word that Christ uses predominantly in the New Testament for judgment is the Greek word krisis. Krisis. We get, a, we get an English word from krisis. Can you guess? Crisis. We get our word crisis from that. You know what crisis means? It means to divide. It means to separate. That's what it means. And that's what a crisis is. When you are confronted with a crisis, you are confronted with a choice. You've got to make a decision. You've got to divide right from wrong. You've got to choose the right decision. Okay? And so you're going to go in one direction or another. The judgment of humanity is God's crisis point. He will make a decision, and that decision will be based on decisions that you and I make in life. And there will be a separation. And Jesus uses this concept of separation in multiple parables. There's a parable about the ten virgins, and the five wise virgins are separated from the five foolish virgins. In that parable, you've got uh, wise servants separated from unwise servants. In another parable, you've got sheep separated from goats. In another parable, and all of those parables deal with the judgment of God. In John 5, 28, he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good, to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Did you know that every human being in history one day will be raised from the dead? Every single one. But where you go after that, depends on decisions that you have made in this life. Because some will be raised to everlasting life, some will be raised to judgment. And, and there, are, there are people, there are fish in this net right now, and they're just swimming along. And they're just oblivious. They're just swimming. They're just swimming right along, and sometimes they'll bump up against the edge of that net, you see, because the, the, the sovereignty and the judgment of God is moving very gradually, very slowly through mankind, and it's enveloping us all. And in the middle of that net, people swim along and they might brush up against the edge of the net. And they're like, oh. And they might hear a message like you're hearing today. And they might hear a message about the, the righteousness of God and the condemnation of God against sin. And they're confronted with that reality. And they're made aware of the, of the concept of judgment. And they're moved in their heart by a message like that. 
momentarily. They come away from it and they feel good or they feel bad. But then they just forget all about it and they just swim off. They're like, they're like Dory in Finding Nemo. Remember Dory? What was her deal? She had short-term memory loss. She couldn't remember something from five seconds ago. And what was her motto? Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming, and people just keep swimming. And we got a million, a billion dories going on right now in this net, and they're just swimming, and they're oblivious, and some of them think they've escaped the net. Some of them don't even see the net. They don't even recognize there's a God. They certainly don't believe in hell. They just think, I'm going to do what I want to do. I just want to live how I want to live. There's no one that I answer to but me. And what they don't know is that they are penned up within this huge circle of God's sovereign plan. And one day, they're going to come before a holy God. And a separation will take place. And they're, they're going to they're gonna die, and they're going to be raised, and they're going to be judged. And from there, they're going to go to one place or another. But because they're enjoying their life, they don't really care. And they're offended at the prospect. They're like, how dare you? Try to condemn me. I'm happy. I mean, isn't that all that matters? We just need to do what makes us happy. I've heard it said that the lost are like people on a sinking cruise ship, but they have no idea. They have no idea. You know, the rules on a vessel that is doomed are quite lax. When a ship captain realizes that all is lost, that, that there's no hope, this ship is going down, there's nothing anybody can do about it, he doesn't really care if people obey the ship rules. He might get on the intercom and say, uh, attention, all of you in third class, uh, why don't you go ahead and move on up to first class? No charge. And they think, really? Wow. You know, he just wants them to be comfortable. He just wants them to go down in comfort, you know. Are you hungry? Uh, you know, hit the kitchen. Knock yourself out. You thirsty? Bar's open. Get whatever you need. Anybody want to play football in the dining room? Go for it. If you break anything, don't sweat it. We got it. It's all covered. Enjoy all the you know, amenities. Do whatever you want. And people hearing that to their limited perspective, they're like, best trip ever! But they'll be dead in minutes. They'll be dead in minutes. You see, you can feel like you've escaped accountability, but nobody escapes judgment. We all stand in judgment. And we're going to observe a few things about the separation. The first thing I want you to see about the separation is that in your notes, it will be indisputable. When this separation happens, you will not be able to dispute the findings of God. You're going to land over here or you're going to land over here. You're not going to be able to come to God and go, ah, excuse me, I think there's been a mistake. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not supposed to be in this category. I belong over there. We don't, we don't get to say that. See, w things are very blurry in our world. We can't tell who's who. God can. God sees, man looks on the outside, God looks on the heart. He looks at you, he knows, redeemed or unredeemed. And once you leave this life, see, you can do something about it now. Once you leave this life, you cannot. You say, is everybody in agreement on that, Pastor Scott? Oh, no. No, there's some different views out there. Here's one. It's called naturalism. Naturalism teaches that this is all there is. There's nothing after that. You, you don't have a soul. You just When you die, that's it. You cease to exist. You're just a body. There's no soul. There's nothing eternal about you. Obviously, the Bible disagrees. 
C.S. Lewis says, uh, I don't have a soul, I am a soul. I have a body. The body houses the soul. When I die, that's just my body that dies. My soul goes on, you see. So naturalism is untrue. Some people like universalism. Universalism teaches that in the end, all or, or nearly all people will be reconciled to God. Doesn't matter what you believed in life. Doesn't matter, matter how you lived your life. God will receive you. He will accept you, okay? Uh, if you believe that all religions lead to God, that all paths lead to God, you are a universalist. Uh, but obviously that's untrue. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Amen? Amen. So there is no universalism. And then some gravitate toward reincarnationism. I don't know if you're old enough to remember when people cared what Shirley MacLaine thought. But reincarnationism teaches that we've got multiple successive lives. We just die and return, die and return, die and return. We're like Bill Gates in Groundhog Day. We just keep coming back, you know? But how we come back in reincarnationism, how we return, what we return as is dependent on how we lived our life. And we build up a measure of karma that translates into good favor when we, we come back. So we don't come back as a snail or something like that. Instead, we lived a good life and now we're going to be somebody important in the next life. Well, the Bible says uh, there's nothing like that depicted in the Word of God. And so all of this is untrue. So God's separation will be indisputable. doesn't matter what you believed in life. You're going to go here or you're going to go here based on whether or not you trusted in Jesus Christ. It's going to be indisputable. And then next in your notes, we, we observe it will be permanent. It will be permanent. This is an act of great finality. And that seems very, very clear from Scripture. And yet, under the banner of Christianity, there are some views that don't see it as final. For example, in Catholicism, and I've got many, many Catholic friends. I love my Catholic friends, okay? But there is a view within Catholicism called uh, purgatory. And so they teach that, that there is a place that when some people die, they enter purgatory where they, they languish for a while. It's like a holding place, and it is there that, that the finishing work of salvation is done. There's sort of a purification that takes place, and the goal ultimately is that you go to heaven. And, and I would assume some don't, okay? But is purgatory in the Bible? Answer, no. I'm sorry, it's just not in there. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. When you die, the next thing on your calendar is not earning a favor. It's not, it's not changing of your mind. It's not an additional purification. When you die, the only thing that awaits your soul is judgment. Is judgment. Whenever Scripture gives us a glimpse into the afterlife, you see people go to where they belong. And they are there until they are raised, at which time there's a formal sentencing, and then they go back. And they go back to where they belong, where they have been all along. But there is no second chances after the grave. There's no post-mortem repentance. There's no dying then deciding. There's no you die and then you're like, you know, on second thought, I think I'll let you be my savior. No. No. As appealing as that might sound. Another thing that appeals to some is called annihilationism. Annihilationism. This teaches that, and a lot of good, and I would say born-again people gravitate toward this. It's very attractive, this doctrine. You know? There's something about this that I, that I like. I'll be honest with you. 
The people who believe this believe that those who die apart from Christ eventually just cease to exist. That they, they, might, they might suffer perhaps in hell for a, a time in a, in a punishment fits the crime sort of way in their mind, but eventually God just kind of blows them out like a candle. He just snuffs them out. They, they just cease to exist. They don't suffer indefinitely. They're just, they're just gone. They are no more. Now why would anyone believe this? Well, nobody wants to think of someone suffering indefinitely. But is there a scripture that supports this? They might get it from Matthew 10, 28, which says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy, destroy both soul and body in hell. And people look at that and they go, destroy both soul and body in hell. Ah, that means that he's just going to snuff us out. We just will be no more. Here's the problem. The word for destroy, the Greek word used there in that verse, is the same word, the same root used in the parables of the lost sheep, the lost son, and the lost coin. Same word for destroy is used for lost. The word means to lose. It doesn't, it's not the parable of the destroyed sheep, the destroyed coin, the destroyed son. No, they're lost. To be lost means to be separated from the Father. They are hopeless. They are useless. Apart from the Father, they need to be found. And all who don't know Christ in this life are lost. But while you're still upright, you're still breathing, there's still hope that you can be found by turning to Christ but folks, when you leave this life in that lost state, you are lost forever. That's why we fear the one who can lose both soul and body in hell. You will be lost forever, permanently. And when you are in this life and you don't know the Lord, his wrath upon, is upon you. That's what John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. That's a definite but the wrath of God remains on him. There are lost people on the earth today. The time for them to turn and be found is now. It's not later. God is an eternal God. A sin against him is an eternal act that deserves an eternal consequence. We will live eternally into the future, all of us. The question is where? Where? Two passages give us insight on that. Daniel from the Old Testament, Revelation from the New. Daniel 12, 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That's resurrection. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's Old Testament. What does Revelation say in the New Testament? Chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast... Antichrist and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented. How long? Temporarily? No. Day and night, forever and ever. You say, well, that's the devil. That's, 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 that's the Antichrist. That's the false prophet. That's, that's, not, that's not just anybody. Look at verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Same place as our adversary, the devil. You're going to live forever. Where? I know where I want to live. 
I know where I want to live. Paul says in Philippians 1, 21, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far, far better. Folks, the choice is clear. I wish this whole hell thing were a myth. I really, really do. I wish I could stand up here and say that this is a concoction of some deranged, uh, bitter preacher who, who got mad at his congregation and wanted to strike fear into their heart. I wish I could tell you that. I can't. I can't. I got to say what I'm saying because it's what Jesus said. And he said it over and over. Why did he talk about hell so much? Because he loved people. You tell somebody the bad news when you love them because you don't want them to suffer. You don't want them to go there. There's a story about C.S. Lewis walking through a graveyard. He He saw a headstone. It said, here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. And C.S. Lewis said, I bet he wishes that were so. I bet he wishes that were so. Here's what you need to understand in your notes. This breaks God's heart. It breaks God's heart. God is not rubbing his hands together in gleeful anticipation of separating righteous from unrighteous and casting the unrighteous into the fires of hell. Why is he going to do it? Because he is a holy and just God. And he cannot compromise his character. God cannot allow sin to enter heaven. The scriptures say he is light. In him is no darkness at all. Darkness cannot have fellowship with light. It, it would be to, God would have to stop being God. People wrestle with this because they say, how can a loving God send people to hell? Let me tell you what a more logical question is. How could a just God allow sinful people into heaven? See, we get, we get fixated on one divine attribute of God, but not another. When they're equally important. And he is both of them simultaneously and perfectly. God is loving. God is just. Check that. God is love. God is justice. And he is both perfectly and simultaneously. But he does not want people to go to hell. Second Peter 3, 9. Not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. He wants people to repent. He wants people to turn. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He did not stand up there with his arms crossed saying, time's up, losers. He wants desperately for the world to turn to him. But he will tell us the truth. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You got to know something. Uh, Hell was not created for you. That was not the original purpose for hell. When hell was created, the world was perfect. Who messed it up? God? No, we did. We did. And as a result, the consequences for that sin is hell. And so that is where we must go. But it is not where he wants us to go. And he wants us to not go there so badly. You know what he did? He sent his only son to live a perfect life, to suffer, to be humiliated, to be shamed, to carry a heavy wooden beam up up a hill and to be nailed to it as a substitute sacrifice out of love and mercy so that you would not have to go to the fires of hell. But that is where you will go, 
apart from him. Verse 50, it says that he will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we see that verbiage again. And here we see number three in your notes. We see the punishment of the unbeliever. This is a punishment. Look at how this is described. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. That means grimacing. That means, that means you, you are going to be filled with the regret that there's nothing you can do to change your situation. There's nothing you are willing to do even because of the hardness of your heart in that place. But hell is a place of punishment. It is not a place where you just replay all of your bad memories. It is not a place where you just descend into everlasting nothingness and you just dissipate. It is not a place uh, where you're going to party with your other non-believer friends. Mark Twain famously said, I prefer heaven for climate and hell for company. Somebody said, I can't wait to get to hell. All my friends are going to be there. Well, that may be so, but don't expect a reunion. That is not the purpose of hell. It is a place of punishment. It is a place where the prideful go. I'm glad Pride Month is over. I'm ready for Humility Month, frankly. I've had an, I'm so sick of rainbows right now, but have you noticed something? It makes me sad more than anything. I, I, I grieve for these, these folks that, are, that are, have bought this lie. I really, really do. Because Jesus died for them. And they're so deceived. And some of the apparel that I've seen in these parades, I think you can buy some of this at your local Target. This rainbow of parable, and on the front of it, I kid you not, I saw this. It said, Satan loves you. I'm not kidding. Uh, Satan loves you. Satan respects pronouns, is what some of us say. The devil's marketing arm has gotten very, very brazen. It ain't subtle, folks. And it stands to reason because pride was the original sin that he introduced. He said, I will be like the Most High. And so if he can dupe us by, by, by catering to our sense of self-importance, our desire to put ourself, our own will first. Pride is at the heart of all sin. Satan knows this better than anybody. He speaks this language. He will deceive us. He wants to take each and every one of us down. And when you die in that pride, when you die in that sin, you are destined for a place of punishment. Scripture is clear. Hebrews 10, 29 says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Anybody who struggles with, well, but God is a God of love. He's a just God. He does not compromise his character. And there will be a punishment. It does not take away from his love. It just points to his holiness. And there's punishment in hell. Who's doing the punishing? Listen, if you end up in hell, the punishment you undergo is not going to be at the hand of some demons with pitchforks. Demons don't want to be in hell any more than you or I do. It's a place of torment for them as much as it is for you or I. Any demon that's in hell is there because they've been sent there. They don't want to be there. This isn't Satan's crib, you know. So who's doing the punishing in hell? You ready for this? God. Let that sink in. God. You say God's doing the punishment? I thought, I thought hell was separation from God. A lot of people say that. Hell is separation from God. Not technically, no. You, you are separated from 
a ministry of the Lord to the believer by which he provides encouragement and comfort and, and fellowship, that is not his role in hell. God is present everywhere. He is omnipresent. To deny that he is in hell would be to deny that divine attribute. No, he's there. But his role there is one of a judge, is one of a tormentor. How do you know that, Pastor Scott? Revelation 14, 10 speaks of those who have sworn allegiance to the Antichrist. And of them it says, they will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Jesus will be present for this. There's nowhere you go to escape God. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, if I, descend, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. Who's going to be in hell? There's a list in Revelation 21. Verse 8, John starts off with, with two categories. He says, but the cowardly, the faithless, okay? Those are two categories of people that are going to be in hell. The cowardly, meaning those are the people who, who would not step forward and say, I will be counted with Christ. I want to be named with Jesus. That's what a coward is in the mind of God. The faithless, those are the people who have never had any authentic belief and trust in Jesus as Savior. And you could be in either category and the world could look at your life and say, well, that's a good person. I mean, sure, they're not a Christian, but look at all the things that they did. Look at all the charity that they gave to. Look at that nonprofit that they run. Look how they were faithful to their spouse. Pillars of the community, kind to people and animals and generous, yada, yada, yada. What does that count for? Look at the rest of the list. Because they're named with, John goes on, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. So you're morally good, but you've never put your faith in Christ? You might as well be a liar, a pervert, an idolater, a pagan, a cultist. It's all the same. In the eyes of God, he says their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The second death. Scripture talks about this thing called a second death. What does that mean? That means you die, the unrepentant go to hell. At the appointed time, you are raised from the dead. You are formally sentenced. You perish a second time. And you go right back. It's been said that if you're born once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, you just die once. And you're raised again to everlasting life. That's the righteous. And so we want to close on that. Number four in your notes, we're going to see here the responsibility of the believer. So Christ finishes this parable and its explanation. He turns to his disciples. He asks them a question. He says in verse 51, Have you understood these things? Have you understood? What's he asking there? Uh, the word for understood uh, in the Greek there, it means to put together. He's saying, have you put this together? Have you put it all together, everything? What's he talking about? The whole chapter, Matthew 13. He's gone through all these parables. He says, you put it all together? I mean, we, we talked about the sower, okay, proclamation of the kingdom. We talked about, uh, you know, the weeds, the infiltration, the impersonation of the kingdom. We talked about the, the mustard seed, the expansion of the kingdom. It's going to grow mighty. It's going to grow fast. It's going to go great. We talked about the, the leaven, uh, the, the potential for the kingdom to be corrupted and, and muted and neutered. 
In this age, we talked about uh, the hidden treasure and the pearl. That's the unity of the kingdom. And now this parable of the net, we got the judgment here. Have you put all that together? Have you connected the dots, boys, of the kingdom? If I'd been there, I, 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 I don't know what I would have said. I'd been like, uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure, you know? What do they say? They said to him, yes. Really? I'm a little surprised by that answer, fellas. I've, I've read the New Testament. I've seen your work. Nonetheless, Jesus appears to take them at face value. And in verse 52, he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new, and what is old. And this is the application right here. He says, you, my disciples, in this next age, you're going to be like the master of a house. A master of the house is the one who's responsible for a household. You see to it that the needs are met. You identify needs, and then you go into the storehouse, and you bring out what is old and what is new, whatever is appropriate to, to speak to a need. And he says, my disciples are to be the stewards of the house in the coming age. And age is, is a dispensation. We studied Ephesians. We looked at that word oikonomia, that age, that dispensation. Oikonomia, oikos means house. Nomi, uh, nomia means law or rules. There are house rules in every age. And in this age that we're in right now, the church age, he says, my disciples, you are to be the stewards of that age, and you're going to go into the storehouse, and you're going to get what is needed to speak to the needs of that age. You got what is old. That's, that's the words of the prophets. That's the Old Testament truth. But that's not going to be enough. That's old covenant. You need, you're going to need some new covenant. You need the gospel. The needs of the next age, they need the gospel. They're going to need the epistles that my apostles are going to write in the years ahead. And you, my stewards, the masters of the house, you're going to speak to those needs. And you're going to give truth that's going to turn lives around so that they don't get caught up in that net and are separated into that pile by which they are targeted for destruction. That's what your job is. That's what your responsibility is. And not just those 12 disciples, but all disciples who would ever come along. And that means you, and that means me. Unless that's not you. Because there may be some here today, and you've listened to what I've said about this net and about the coming judgment. And you might be saying to me, Pastor Scott, I'm Dory. I'm just swimming along. I've just been doing my own thing. I've bumped into the truth a few times, but I, I get over it, you know, and I, I, I just keep swimming. I, I don't want to be judged in that way. If that's you, that could change today. I want us to bow our heads right now. Our prayer team is going to come down right now. They're going to make their way down here to the front, and they're going to be waiting and with every head bowed and every eye closed in this room right now, if you have come to a realization today and there's no better day than on 4th of July weekend to embrace true freedom that can only be provided by Jesus Christ, if that is you, where you are right now, 
with nobody watching you, I just want you to make a decision that will change your eternity. And you can pray along with me. And I want you to know this this is not a magic formula. There's nothing in the words that I'm about to utter that you're going to repeat in your heart. These words don't save you, you understand. But it's the decision that you're making. It's a commitment that you're making. You're going to trust in what Jesus did. And it's turning your life over to him. I'm going to put my faith in what he did. And I want to follow him. Transformed. I'm going to go from unclean fish to good, desirable fish in the eyes of a holy God by the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. So if that's you right now, if you're ready to make that decision, I want you to pray in your heart along these lines. Dear Jesus, I'm tired of swimming. I'm tired of doing my own thing. I'm turning to you right now. I know I can't earn your favor, but what you accomplished for me at Calvary, I'm putting my faith in that. I'm letting go right now, and I'm I'm turning my life over to you. Would you save me? Would you reserve my soul for everlasting life? I want to follow you. All I have is yours. With every head still bowed, there may be also believers in this room who are thinking of people that they love, that they know, who have never trusted Jesus Christ. And in this moment, you're crying out to God in your heart that you want them to to be saved. You want them to come to knowledge of who Jesus is. But you don't know how, what role to play in that. And you're saying, Pastor Scott, I don't know what to say. I don't feel strong enough. What if they reject me? You need to be prayed for. You need to be bold. You need to be empowered. And I want to pray for you to that regard. Let's have everybody look up right here. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you've made a decision this morning to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm going to ask you to do something right now. I'm going to ask you to come down to the front here. There are people waiting at the front. I want you to share your decision with somebody. What you just did to invite Christ into your life, to be your Lord, to be your master, I'm going to invite you down in three seconds. One, two, three. You make your way down here right now. And you make that decision known to somebody. If it's a decision worth making for Jesus Christ, it's a decision worth telling somebody about. This morning in our first service, I don't even know. Ken, how many people trusted Christ? There were five or six that came down, folks. You're not alone. There are people. There are people coming right now. So if you're ready, you come down here. Jesus said, if you will acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. But he said, if you are ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. And I just ask you to come down and to make this decision for Jesus Christ today. And I would also invite those of you who who have decided, I want to be used of the Lord to come down here and I want to ask for prayer. Does anybody here know somebody that needs to trust Christ as Savior? Do you know? Some of you need to get out more. If you don't, all right? 
I'm gonna invite you to come down here right now and we're gonna pray over you that God will use you this week to impact a life. Will somebody come down here right now that we can lift you up to the Lord Jesus, that he will empower you, that you will make an impact in a life this week? I'm gonna be used of the Lord Jesus Christ right now. I look forward to the praise requests that are going to come because God gave you the words to say that he filled you with his spirit, that you communicated life-changing truth that transformed someone's eternity forever. You come down to the front right now. We're going to lift this up to Lord Jesus Christ right now. Let's pray over these folks. You guys pray in concert with us. Can you just stretch a hand out toward the front here right now? Lord, I lift up everybody here at the front. God, they're making a commitment to you. This is, this is taking their faith. This is rubber meets the road right here. This is where it becomes real. This is not just coming and checking a box, coming to a church service, God. This is real. This is taking a stand. This is recognizing the stark reality of the judgment of a holy God, understanding the difference that it would make if Jesus Christ could enter a life Lord, if anybody made a decision in the privacy of their heart today, I pray that you would empower them, you would fill them, you would embolden them to share that with others, that they would celebrate what you've done in their life. And Lord, for everybody here at the front right now that knows someone, they're thinking of them right now, they have, they have shed tears over these people, their names have been whispered in their hearts a thousand times. They want desperately to see them come to saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would use these individuals in accordance with your will in a, in a powerful, life-changing way this week. We, sh we cast off every uh, spirit of fear, every doubt, every seed of, of, uh, 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 of, of impotence that the devil might sow in our minds, and we claim the truth of Jesus Christ. And we're trusting you to use us in our weakness because where we are weak, we acknowledge our weakness and are made strong because we look to the strength of Jesus. We pray for boldness and eloquence and articulate heart and soul as we engage in spiritual warfare this week. And we claim victory and we praise you in advance for the lives that are gonna come to faith this is what you've called us to do, Lord Jesus, to share the hope that is in us, to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And we pray your blessing upon everybody here in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.